Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. Good evening. I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens. Tonight. Raising a glass half full, we are celebrating the new year by looking back at some of the stories that gave us hope last year, from the sublime to the ridiculous, and including the sublimely ridiculous. Double down. At an <laughs> Iowa cemetery, a couple of geese become a goose couple, and they have a great meet-cute story. The human who runs the cemetery took out a personal ad on the female's behalf. Frankly, our conversation was a bit stiltened. My haunting interview and Chris's favorite with a Thai romancer, as in someone who tells your fortune using a block of cheese. Obviously. What else? Yeah. And who, in this case, conjured up some fascinating Emmental images. The high points of his day. A Dutch biologist is overjoyed to see that birds are sticking it to the man by using anti-bird spikes to build their nests. Get this through your thick gull, hard as it is to swallow. An expert confirmed that, yes, seagulls actually gulp down an entire squirrel if they want to. And sometimes they do. And am I my broth's (laughs) keeper? A New York woman goes to pot and her neighbors go with her. And working together, their ingredients make a perpetual stew that cooked for 60 days. As it happens, the New Year's Day edition, radio that's always stirring. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. You know, just a second. Can I get some some poignant music while I read this? Hmm, that is very beautiful. But can we go more poignant? Y'all ready for this? Incredible. It's so moving. But you know what? I think maybe, maybe we can get even more poignant. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Let's try this. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Okay, so now let's try that again over yakety sacks and see which... Oh, we don't have time. Okay, well, that was probably better anyway. That was the first stanza of Emily Dickinson's Hope is the Thing with Feathers, which I read for two reasons. First, as an audition piece for my local community theater's production of Cats, which is coming up in March. Oh, okay, got a text there. I did not get the part. Okay. Well, the second reason I read that poem was to establish the theme of this New Year's Day program, Hope. We will be looking back at some of the stories we covered in 2023 that seemed most hopeful, like the tale of a bereaved goose 
who found love again. We got him in the car and we brought him back up to our office where Blossom was and let him go there right in front of her. And she, I have this beautiful picture of her with her wings outspread like she's ready to hug him. Oh. And the story of some other birds whose appetite for life knows no bounds. This is not a barbaric behavior. This is just the norm. It's, it's to be expected from seagulls that they are going to eat whatever is available. And the inspiring tale of a woman who believes cheese is the future, and the future is in cheese. So I googled weird ways to tell fortunes with food. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I found tyromancy. And as someone who loves both cheese and divination, I, I mean, it's right up my alley. Now let's start with the story of Blossom, a goose who lives at a cemetery in Iowa. Ever since her partner died, she had been morose and melancholy, waddling around among the gravestones, wondering what it all meant. But as we have established, hope is the thing with feathers. In this case, another goose. But before he showed up, hope was also a thing without feathers. Our guest, Dory Tamman the general manager of Riverside Cemetery in Marshalltown, Iowa, who posted a personal ad online seeking a new partner for Blossom the Goose. Neil spoke with Ms. Tamman last March. Dory, how, how did you describe Blossom in that personal ad? Um, <laughs> I described her as, well, do you want me to read the ad? Let's, let's hear it. Okay. Lonely, widowed, domestic goose seeks life partner for companionship and occasional shenanigans. Come share life with me at Riverside Cemetery, where you will enjoy swimming in the lovely lake, good food, numerous friends, and peeking in the door of the office building at the strange but kind humans there who feed us lots of goodies. I'm youthful, adventurous, and lively, and I've been told I'm beautiful. (laughs) Why did you want to write an ad for a goose? She came here five years ago with a... with a partner, a mate. His name was Bud. Mm -hmm. We lost Bud last August, sadly. And just recently, in the last month or so, we started to notice that she was really seeming lonely and isolating herself even more. And she would stand in front of our office door, um, peering in or maybe looking at her reflection. And she was depositing poo on our doormats, Uh-oh. which we didn't really like, but it was clear that she was lonely and needed uh. a partner. When you wrote it, did you did you think you'd you get any responses? Or was it just Well, a we're lark? agricultural land with lots of farms and, and I thought that sooner or later, yeah, we probably would. I had no idea whatsoever that it would just go viral like <laughs> this. I'm still kind of in shock over that. Well, people people do love um, a love story. So what kind of response did you get? What were some of the... Well, I had one lady call and leave a message that she would sell us a goose for $30, and that just didn't seem very romantic to no. me. <laughs> no, so that was off the list. Yes, and then I happened to be here on a Saturday for just an hour or two and got a phone call while I was here from a couple, also um, here in Iowa, about an hour away who were planning to sell their home and move out of state and could not take their goose Frankie with them oh. and they were and he was lonely also and widowed oh so they were looking for a nice home for him and we made arrangements and, and he then, came up here yeah what happened i mean it's it sounds like a perfect match on paper but humans will know that doesn't always translate yeah well the so first day that he got here he was 
um, upset, shook up probably about the change in his surroundings. And he took off and flew across our, we have a lake here, and he flew across the lake and wandered into the back of the grounds. And we searched all over for him that afternoon, and we could not find him. So it was not a very auspicious beginning and a a little stressful. Um, We have a a fairly major river behind our grounds, and I was afraid that he would wander off into the river and be gone. But the next morning we came in, and he was down at our shop, which is down along the river where we keep all of our equipment, and he was just outside there standing, and as soon as I opened the door and got out of the car, he came (laughs) running towards me and let me pet him. And we got him in the car, and we brought him back up to our office where Blossom was and let him go there right in front of her. And she, I have this beautiful picture of her with her wings outspread like she's ready to hug him. Oh. And they have been inseparable ever since. I don't think they've been more than a few feet away from each other since that day. From March, Neil's conversation with Dory Tammon, general manager of Riverside Cemetery in Marshalltown, Iowa. Now, the story of Blossom and Frankie proves that hope is sometimes literally the thing with feathers or uh, multiple things with feathers. You're a bird who lives in a cemetery. You're morose and you've taken to defecating on a welcome mat. You can still find love or vice versa. Or you're a bird confronted with a nightmarish cluster of angry, painful spikes intended to prevent you from building a much-needed home in a given location. You can take the spikes and build a home out of them. Last July, Neil spoke with biologist Alka Florian Himstra, who had just published a study on birds using anti-bird spikes to build nests. Alka Florian, can you can you describe for us the birds' nests that your new study describes? Well, they're very strange. Let me say that first. <laughs> so these are bird nests made out of anti-bird spikes. And that in itself already sounds like a joke, but it's really a structure made by a bird. And so the first nest I encountered of this kind was actually a nest in Antwerp. And it's a square meter big. So it's a, it's a big, wow. big nest. And it consists out of 1,500 nasty metal spikes, anti-bird spikes, 1,500. So that's really like a fortress. It's a bunker for birds. And it's such a weird looking, strange, but also beautiful and funny nest. So I'm very happy now that I can share the discovery with the world. I, I, I'm looking looking at the picture of it. It is it is quite extraordinary. <laughs> and these are the spikes, just in case anybody missed it. You'll see them all over cities, sometimes around people's houses too. So yeah. birds don't land in places you don't want them to land. So yeah, yeah, sadly, they're very common. Yeah. Um, however, these magpies also can use them, which I think is is very nice. So, so the nest is made out of anti-bird spikes, but especially the roof as magpies. Uh, the birds who made this nest not only make a nest, but also a roof above the nest. And for this roof, normally they search for thorny branches, as this roof is really to defend the nest. However, in cities nowadays, there there are not a lot of plants you can find, but there's something else spiky out there, namely the anti-bird spikes. And this is, I think, is is, is extraordinary. It really seems that the Birds are using the anti-bird spikes in exactly the same way as they were intended to be used to keep birds away. And that, I think, is just brilliant. When did you first become aware of these nests? Well, I do interviews more often about my research about artificial nesting material. And always I try to include a little segment where I say, if you ever 
if anyone ever sees a strangeness or weirdness, a funny lookingness, please make a picture, send it to me. Um, and actually, this whole story started with such an email of someone, uh, a patient from a hospital, as this nest was found in the courtyard of a hospital, a hospital patient reading an interview uh, asking for nests. And this person looked out of the window and saw this very big nest out of anti-bird spikes. And so he sent me an email saying, what I see right now, you have to see this as well. Come down here and you you will be surprised. And, and so were. it was. And this whole story just started by someone reaching out to me saying, I found something special and you have to see it as well. I have a hunch you never really liked these bird spikes. Well, I, I really hate bird spikes, for sure. And also, like, when, when someone close to you gets pregnant, suddenly everywhere you see pregnant people. I have the same <laughs> with these bird spikes. When you, when you suddenly realize uh, how many there are, it's horrible. Just walking through a city, I see yeah. bird spikes everywhere. Well, what should, um, people do? what should people do, though? Because sometimes they do, the, as much, even if you love birds, they might be causing some trouble. So what's your advice to well, people? Well, birds are, are, are a part of the city, just as humans are. And so I think I really think, as a biologist, we should um, just embrace that urban wildlife. It's there. Um, and actually, we should celebrate it instead of fighting it. Um, so that's really my message of peace. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, I really enjoy that these birds are just um, these rebellious birds, as I should call them, are really fighting back and making something beautiful out of these nasty bird spikes. So I really, I'm, I'm really cheering for the birds. Biologist Alka Florian Hemstra telling Neil about his research on bird nests made out of anti-bird spikes. As I mentioned tonight, we are looking back at the stories of hope that aired on As It Happens in 2023. It so happens that a number of those stories were about birds including the one where we learned that it is normal and acceptable in nature for a seagull to grab and eat an entire squirrel. If you've seen the video of the seagull choking down a squirrel that went viral this year, you may question that this is a hopeful story. But think of it this way. Is there a major challenge in your life that you think is too big to manage? That is your squirrel. And you, too, like a seagull, can swallow it whole. Truly, nature is an endless series of miracles— as gull expert Peter Rock confirmed when he spoke to Neil in June. Peter, some people who have watched this video, I am not one of them, uh, <laughs> described it as savage, even traumatizing. How would you describe what's in that video? I don't have a problem with that description. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. It is nature red in tooth and claw. But you also have said that this signals not that seagulls are barbaric, as some mm -hmm. people might describe this act. You said it signals something else about seagulls. What is that? You're absolutely right. This is not a barbaric behavior. This is just the norm. It's, it's to be expected from seagulls that they are going to eat whatever is available. <laughs> and if it happens to be some weakling animal, then they will kill it and they will eat it. And you said it suggests that they're smart and calculating and have had to get to this point, right? Well, actually, they are. They're really very smart, um, not just for doing this kind of survival behavior. I mean, food, of course, is the key for everything, and they know how to get it. And for these birds, they know everything about everything within their home range. So if one food source dries up, they know exactly where to go for something mm -hmm. else. For those uh, who have not seen a still image or any of this, this video, just paint a picture for us. How big is the gull compared to the squirrel. It is swallowing it whole. Let's just make that clear, like gulping uh, right. it right down. 
Yeah, well, the bird that you're looking at in that image is exactly the same one. Well, not. It's a different species, but uh, it is very, very similar. Um, it's a herring gull, and um, it is um, uh, our version of the herring gull, and they are big, as you know. So, yes, um, it's perfectly possible for the, this um, herring gull <laughs> to swallow something fairly large. It is funny, you know, when you see them, say, at landfill, and they swallow a, an item that is a bit too big, you get this big bulge in the back of their neck <laughs> as, it's going down, as it's going down the trachea. <laughs> it's down their throats, and they're determined not to give it up. So, yes, um, it is perfectly possible for it to be able to swallow a squirrel. I've seen them eating rats. Um, mm. I've seen them feasting on pigeons and so on. It is a not uncommon thing, though this, I have to say, is the first time I've come across a squirrel. <laughs> so, it just happens to be a novelty, I think. One of the comments uh, on one of the stories about this this video said, quote, 10 years, good luck to the person that gets blessed with that aftermath, unquote. Uh Speaking a little bit to what you were talking about just there, about the, the nuisance of gulls, uh, tell us about the aftermath of <laughs> ingesting a whole squirrel. Okay, so um, they will eat quite a lot of it. Is that what you're talking about? Are we talking yes. about, um, about what will happen after they've managed to Indeed. swallow this thing? Ah, right, okay. So the gulls have got gizzards, which filter out um, what is good, which then goes down to the gut and the rest of it. Um, will form into uh, what's called a pellet. It's the same way that owls eat. Mm. Uh, owls cough up pellets, and so do gulls. I've had to I dissect an owl pellet them. before in school, and it's a memory that I will never there forget. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a memory that I will never forget. Part of what I do in my research um, is I am putting bands on uh, the legs of the nestlings. And so what they then do is to fly off with those those plastic bands, um, and each one has got a an engraved code on it, and it helps me to track down what they're doing, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm in the process of doing that, I handle these birds, and there was one particular bird that had a bit of a, a kind of a stick sticking out of its bill. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, what's going on here? So I took a yank, I took a pull on it, and I kept on pulling and kept on pulling and kept on pulling. And what it was was one of those little kind of wooden sticks that you use on barbecues for doing, for, doing, for doing barbecuing of your little bits of meat. And it was about six inches long. Oh what a shock. <laughs> what do the you... bird didn't suffer any ill effects, and, oh. and nor will the, gull, the, the herring gull who swallowed that squirrel. They never suffer any ill effects. They got cast iron stomachs. Seagull expert Peter Rock explaining that seagulls can and will eat anything live or dead and eventually excrete it on your picnic table with no problems. If that doesn't fill you with hope, what will? Maybe this. It's the story of Peanut, who was forced out of her shell by a human named Marcy Parker Darwin. I do not mean that Ms. Darwin helped Peanut get over her shyness. I mean she literally busted Peanut out of her eggshell. Peanut is a chicken. I promise that this is the last bird story. At least I am 70% sure. The point is, Peanut overcame that childhood trauma, and this year was named the world's oldest chicken. Guest host Katie Simpson talked to Marcy Parker Darwin in August. Marcy, what is life like on the farm now that you have a world-famous chicken? Well, it's quite a bit busier, actually, not quite as quiet. (laughs) We get phone calls from Canada, for heaven's sake, so Peanut's getting a big head. Tell us a little bit about Peanut. Well, 
since I cracked her out of her egg and brought her in the house, she's always gotten her way and been kind of a spoiled little chicken. But, you know, we love her, and obviously we've given her a lot of care, and that's how she's achieved this old age, I guess. (laughs) You mentioned that you helped her out of her shell. Can you tell us a little bit about how Peanut came into your life? Um, Yes, her mom had hatched some eggs and left Peanut's egg in the nest, and I noticed it a day or two later. It was cold, and so I assumed it wasn't going to hatch, and I was going to throw it in our pond so that it wouldn't attract animals. And just as I was about to pitch it into the water, I heard a cheep, and then I held the egg up to my ear because I couldn't believe it, and sure enough, the egg was cheeping. So I looked at it, and there was a little tiny crack, so I just started peeling her out of her egg. And so I hatched a peanut. (laughs) And then from there, you brought her into the house. Mm -hmm, I did. Her mom didn't want to accept her. You know, she was just this kind of wet little thing, and her other chicks were all dried off and fluffy. And so I brought her in and put her under a heat lamp. And eventually, over the course of the next few days, I had to teach her how to drink and eat, because that's usually what the mama chicken does. And um, she just decided that she was my chicken. She wasn't going to live outside with those awful little birds. So she was quite content and happy to live in our house. Tell me what a day in the life of Peanut is these days. Well, these days it's pretty quiet. She goes outdoors on nice days, but I would not leave her unattended. I don't want a hawk or a box or something to get her at this point. So um, she has supervised forays outdoors. Occasionally, I will let Peanut sit in my lap while I'm watching TV or reading, and she just enjoys being stroked, and she will talk to us, make little happy noises, and, and that's kind of her life. And what was that moment like when you received word that, yes, in fact, Peanut is the world's oldest living chicken? Well, it was exciting. You know, it made me kind of proud. (laughs) Now, I understand she, in addition to, you know, living in the house, which is kind of unusual, she also has some unique food requests, as well as she's a bit of a dancer, I understand. Yes, she really would prefer that she have blueberry yogurt for breakfast every day. If I fail to bring blueberry yogurt, I hear, well, they're not really happy chirping noises. They're kind of irritated chirping noises. And if I'm in a hurry that morning and go out the door, then I hear that noise again when I come in the house. She wants that yogurt. (laughs) You know, I'm highly advising. I'm eating yogurt every day now. (laughs) I've taken advice from my chicken. Marcy Parker Darwin, roommate of Peanut, the world's oldest chicken, talking to guest host Katie Simpson in August. Now, Peanut the chicken has been on a long, phenomenally successful journey. Whereas James Nokise, the comedian from New Zealand, has been on a long, totally disastrous journey. Not unlike the social media network X, formerly known as Twitter, which is where Mr. Nokise documented his nightmarish attempt to take the train from London to Edinburgh in September. James, how far were you into your journey when you found out that the train was canceled? Uh, I was about two hours uh, into the journey, and I got an email from the company telling me that the train that I was traveling on had been canceled. The train is moving. (laughs) 
The train is moving. We, we, are, we are in progress uh, on the journey. And so did everyone around you, were they all looking at their phones, wondering the same thing? Or did you break the news to your fellow passengers? No, no, it was actually, uh, everyone got the email around the same time. And so someone took the train manager, the conductor aside and said, hey, the train's been cancelled. But the conductor hadn't been told. And so they went, no, it hasn't. And then 10 minutes later came on and said, all right, the rumours are true. (laughs) The train's been cancelled. Everyone gets off at the next stop. So you're not going to Edinburgh. Where are they taking you? No, we're we're going to a place called Preston, which I now know is is a city or a major city, depending on what part of England you talk to. And the city of Preston, there is another train that is being held. And that train is going to take us not to Edinburgh, but to Glasgow. And then we'll have to catch probably a connecting bus or train. Um, but unfortunately, we're not the only cancelled train that night it turns out so the connecting the train they've held for us it gets too full and we all get off our train and try to get across and as we're on the the bridge to cross between the platforms it just takes off so we're now we're stuck in preston train station which is closed because it's (laughs) it's coming on about eight o'clock at night but then but just before it shuts there's an announcement and the train we're all waiting for has also been cancelled (laughs) how many people are waiting with you there's a couple of hundred people on this platform. Okay. Your tweets are funny, but what is the range of emotion on that platform? Because I can't imagine everyone was having fun with this. It was a bit like sports. There were veterans and there were rookies. And I was definitely a rookie <laughs> because I was just with a bunch of other people just looking at the screen with the with the <laughs> arrivals and departures, like trying to will it to change. Yes, yes. We end up getting told a little bit uh, afterwards that there'll be it'll be taxis and we all have to go and wait outside outside the train station in the cold. So taxis for two hundred people to take you to Glasgow? Uh, no, some some are going to Glasgow, some are going to Edinburgh, some are going to Dundee. Like they were going beyond Edinburgh. It, it was it, real madness. And and for people who don't know their geography, these are like three hour car rides. Jackpot minimum. for the cabbies. But jackpot for the cabbies, yeah, an astronomical. But the sign. um, yeah. it, and and so I'm I'm waiting for these car, these taxis, and it, it's just normal. Well, it's normal British taxis. So you've got some some uh, just you're playing cars, but some are black cabs, like you see in um in films and that. You know, your black cabbie, and so that's what I end up in. Me and three strangers. I think about twenty minutes into the journey on in the cab when everyone had sort of gone to sleep, except for me. I I think that's when I decided to start just tweeting. I was beginning to feel a bit insane, like maybe... (laughs) Am I dreaming this? Am I in an alternate universe? Because it was was too much. I think the black cab was when I realized I was beginning to slip mentally. So it kept you, you sane. Know. How many? I don't know how many people can say Twitter kept them sane, but uh, that's that's a good thing. So, <laughs> so how long was this journey supposed to take, and how long did it take you start to finish in the end? The journey I was supposed to. I got on the train at four thirty because I'm one of those people that gets to a train a little bit early. Um, I got on the train at four thirty for a four forty leave. We were meant to get in um, at at ten past ten. We got to Edinburgh at. 3.30. In the morning? In the morning. So 11 hours. 11 hours. Um, 
and you know you, you just kind of go well, yeah this is this this has happened neil talking to james nokise in september As we said, on this New Year's Day episode of As It Happens, we are looking back at hopeful stories from the past year. And for some people, abstract hope isn't enough. They want to know specifically what is in the future to hope for. So they read their horoscopes, or they go for tarot readings, or they're into numerology or runes or palmistry, and those are all great, reliable ways of telling the future. But they're all pretty mainstream. If you're looking for a cool, alternative way of exploring the unknown, you have to check out the Mansies. There are dozens of Mansies. You've got Bibliomancy, where you open a random book to a random page, and the first passage you see is your fortune. There's Nephomancy, which involves the careful interpretation of clouds, their shapes, their place in the sky, and their color. And, of course, there's Cephalionomancy, where you simply boil a donkey's severed head until the flesh falls off and then examine its bumps and irregularities. That one is kind of in poor taste. But you know what Mancy is in great taste? Tyromancy. Divination by cheese. And in September, Neil bravely took a step into the cheese supernatural with Jennifer Billock of Chicago. Jennifer, what makes cheese magical to you? What exactly are you doing with it? So I'm using it to tell people's fortunes. Um, <laughs> aside from the magic of it just being delicious. Yes. <laughs> You can really tell, like, an overall view of what's going on in someone's life. You can answer specific questions. You can do, I, I like to do a past, present, and future reading with three different types of cheese. So you can see where someone's been, where they are, and where they're going. How did you even fall into this, this, this line of work or this hobby? So I also run a newsletter called Kitchen Witch on Substack that I started at the beginning of the pandemic. And as I was trying to figure out ways to promote it, I thought, oh, I should send out something like, these are the type of articles we'll have. And so I Googled weird ways to tell fortunes with food. <laughs> <laughs> and I found Tyromancy. And as someone who loves both cheese and divination, I, I mean, it's right up my alley. So I did some research into it and I taught myself how to do it. And I've been doing it ever since. What are the ideal cheeses to do this with? You mentioned you usually have a few with you because I'm thinking, I don't know, a baby bell or string cheese doesn't have a story to tell. <laughs> string cheese actually might. But, okay. Um, so the ideal cheese is a blue or a Swiss or something that has either holes or veins, or any kind of variation on the surface. So if it's just a plain piece of cheese, like an American single or a baby bell, for example, because it's really smooth, those would not work. String cheese might, because depending on how the, the strings come off when you pull your piece off of the string cheese. So in your in your research of Tyromancy and its history, what is what is the key? What is the legend you're looking at to see a story and to tell someone's future from these hunks of cheese? So on the cheese, I'm looking for shapes, patterns, lines, holes as far as the size, the depth, the amount, any groupings. 
it's very similar to reading tea leaves and coffee grounds where Mm -hmm. you're just looking for different symbols or shapes or indicators in the variations of the cheese that'll tell you you know, the story of the person that you're reading for. I'm very familiar with with, uh, reading coffee or having your coffee uh, grinds read. Uh, Is there a pattern in cheese that you you really don't want to (laughs) see? It's possible, yeah. For example, if there is a like really deep gash that goes across part of the cheese, that can sometimes be a bad thing. If there is a hole that looks really ragged mm-hmm. <laughs> and goes really deep through it, depending on what is happening around that portion, it may not be the best indicator. Um, I was doing a reading recently where I could tell from the cheese that this couple I was reading for was going to get in a fight <laughs> and that one of them was going to end up being pretty bitter about something. And you could, I could tell that just by looking at the crystallization on the edge of the cheese. So I, I told her just to be careful. And what <laughs> happened? An did they report back? That. They did not report back. This was just over the weekend. Okay, so we don't know if that no, big blowout happened. More people followed up, yeah. Okay. <laughs> From September, Neil talking to expert tyromancer Jennifer Billick. Now that cheese was real. You... You don't joke about having cheese when you don't have it. Steak, though, steak, you can joke about. In fact, you can joke about having a steak house when really you just have an apartment where you cook steak. It started as an in-joke. Because they had a steak dinner every week, some roommates listed their address on Google Maps as Mehran's Steakhouse. Then they added fake reviews. Then they made a website for the fake steakhouse, all of which just whetted the appetite of New York's fooderati to visit this non-existent restaurant. Now, there were two ways to end that joke. One, just take down the website and the reviews and quietly erase all the evidence. Or two, open an actual steakhouse. And in September, for one night only, the roommates did the second one. Neil talked to Mehran Jalali, who served as head chef that night. Mehran, if I had walked in, what kind of experience would I have had at this one-night-only steakhouse? What would I have seen? Um, You'd walk in, you'd be uh, greeted by a security guard that checked for your name. You'd go in and you'd see uh, four hostesses there. One was my cousin, one was my girlfriend, and two of them were other friends. They'd take your name down, take your coat and everything, and you walk past. We had a friend doing the door, and he would remove the velvet rope. And once you pass the velvet rope, they would move like this like huge door that opens the dining room and you can go in. Once you go in on your left, you see a bunch of pictures of me with like historically improbable figures that I would have taken pictures <laughs> with, like feeding, hand feeding pasta to JFK or shaking hands with Obama or sitting with Marilyn Monroe or Einstein or Al Capone or something. Full After steakhouse that, vibe. Yeah. Yes, yes, old steak. <laughs> um, and all of the pictures are of me from like two nights ago as well, to be clear. Do, um, do you think people realized what they were walking into, that, that this was a prank? Or did they really think this was a when, new, yeah, if, albeit eccentric, steakhouse? <laughs> yeah, when people walked in, most people didn't know what was going on. They thought that they just been on a wait list for a steakhouse for like <laughs> one and a half years or two years or so. And that they just had, that we just happened to have an opening after all this time and they came in and they're so lucky. They didn't know that it would be like a one-off thing. They think it's just business as usual on a decades or centuries old steakhouse. So when all was said and done, what kind of reviews did they give you? Most people really, really loved it. They, like, I guess, enjoyed the absurdities. 
some people probably probably caught on to the fact that you know this is way too absurd to be like an actual steakhouse on a normal night. Um, but for the most part, I just like really, really enjoyed the meal and had a really fun time. Did you ever tell them, you know, at the end of the meal? We thought that it would be funnier if they would just like, you know, they would go home with a very interesting story <laughs> that they tell their family and friends and then like a day or two later they see it in the New York Times. Right. Um, and that seems to be what happened. And did you get any response from them after that? Yeah, a bunch of people. So we bought this like 212 number, which for context is like a very exclusive like sure. New York. It's an original code. New, New York area <laughs> code. Yeah. 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 You had to be an old timey New Yorker. Um, so we had a 212 number that we had set up and people text us saying like, hey, haha. I realized some things were strange, but just saw the Times or the Post or whatever article, and you guys did a great job. Really enjoyed the steak. Like, well done. Good luck on your future or something like that. Um, so, yeah, people people loved it. You talked about the friends and family you enlisted to help. You were head chef. I'm pretty sure none of you are, are professional chefs. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, basically none of us have restaurant experience. <laughs> so what was it like cooking steak for, for 100 people? It was cool. I mean, what we lacked in experience, we made up for in like overstaffing, just like thinking really hard about what we had to do. So we had 65 of our friends were helping us and we served like a little over 100 people, which is just like a 1.6 to 1 guest to worker ratio, which is absurd for a restaurant. You're just like, you know, like 10 to 1 or like 5 to 1 or something like that. (laughs) So a calm environment then? Relatively speaking. Oh, no, no. It was still (laughs) super stressful because, again, very, very inexperienced with this whole field. But it ended up being really okay. From September, Neil's conversation with Mehran Jalali, whose fake namesake steakhouse came to life for one beautiful, strange night in September. Now, you know what else came to life in New York this year? A neighborhood. A neighborhood of strangers who were brought together by a simple, heartwarming, stomach-warming, kind of gross-looking, probably unwise from the perspective of health and safety, perpetual stew, also known as forever soup, which by the time Neil spoke with Annie Rowarda in July had been bubbling away for 40 days. Why, Annie, why? And in the middle of the scorching heat of summer, no less. It's not stew season, but I just thought, who cares? Why not? Why not? That's what I was thinking. What, what was the inspiration? What was the moment where you thought, I'm going to make stew and it's going to be a perpetual stew? Well, I had known about the concept of perpetual stew since early quarantine when I found the Wikipedia article about perpetual stew. And I thought, well, that's so interesting. I hope to do that someday. But that was back when we were wiping down our groceries. And so I thought, well, <laughs> if I'm going to do any community event, it will definitely not be a communal pot of stew. Um, However, as times have changed, I I have not forgotten about the perpetual stew, and my best friend was in town for the summer. Her name is Hajin Yu, and we like to do a lot of hijinks together, (laughs) and so we hatched the idea, and then (laughs) no one stopped us. (laughs) Here we are. Here you are. How is it smelling and tasting today? Today it's pretty good. It's mostly just broth. There's some potatoes. It's a little bit spicy still. Somebody put in a little bit of hot sauce, which I think is delicious. Yeah, can you taste a little bit for us right now? How's it? How's it tasting? <laughs> okay, sure. I mean, it's not bad. It just kind of <laughs> tastes like broth. Like it's there's some tomatoes. There's some a little bit of kick. I'll definitely add a lot more ingredients in the next day or two before we have people eating it. But for now, it's I mean, it's fine. <laughs> How many people do you think have contributed to? the stew in the last 40 days? Definitely hundreds. 
I do not have an exact count, but if I had to estimate the number of people who have come bringing ingredients, I would guess maybe a total of like 300. And have all those people tasted it as well? Most have. Some decide to sit out, which is totally fine. I will (laughs) never force anyone to eat the stew. Um, It's more about the community. Are you worried about safety, food safety? Yes and no. Like, for myself, I feel fine about it. I eat it all the time. I'm I'm doing okay. I don't want anyone to get sick, but I think that because I'm so worried about that, I'm being pretty responsible, and I honestly think that there's a low chance that we have a problem. Um, the idea is that if you keep the stew above, like, 200 degrees Fahrenheit, you're not going to have harmful bacteria growing, and so I should be good. The thing I'm a little bit more worried about is there might be a lot of people coming. And so I just hope no one gets mad at me if we run out of stew or if we just have like shot glass sized portions. What has it taught you this adventure in stew? I really like doing goofy things that require a lot of effort (laughs) just for myself because I think they're funny. But this taught me that there are a lot of people out there that enjoy participating and even more people out there that enjoy watching the ride. I put little daily stew logs on a website and I've been having a lot of fun emailing people who have questions about the stew. So that has been pretty exciting. I've met a lot of people and they've realized that even though sometimes in a big city, it's easy to feel alone, it's also very possible to create a community, even if it's a community around weird things like a stew that doesn't stop cooking. (laughs) I found the whole thing to be far more touching and far more human than I anticipated. That was Annie Rowerta explaining her perpetual stew to Neil in July. That stew would cook for nearly three more weeks until it became unperpetual at the age of 60 days. Rest easy, stew. Your work is done. As I mentioned, tonight's stories are all about hope. And what generates hope, like the commingling of neighbors, throwing stuff they would otherwise have composted into a collective soup? Sometimes you just have to step up when your community needs you. The perpetual stew did that, and so did Ricky Littlejohn who slapped on his chaps without question as soon as he heard a loose cannon named Lester had dramatically flown the coop again, this time down the highway. I don't know if Mr. Little John wore chaps, actually, but I do know that he wrangled a runaway steer named Lester after Lester made a run for it down the I-75 in Michigan. Guest host Helen Mann talked to Ricky Little John in June. Ricky, if you were to describe Lester in a word, what would it be? Oh... He would be elusive. Elusive. <laughs> you, sa- <laughs> you sound almost admiring in saying that. Yes. So yes. What, what was it like to chase the elusive Lester down the interstate? It was quite, uh, I guess it was quite scary at first because uh, state police didn't quite have the highway shut completely down. If you guys seen the video or not, but cars were whizzing by us going 70 to 75 mile an hour until uh, I finally got a rope on him and they got everything shut down. It was pretty hairy. And you're riding your horse at this time. How was the horse responding to all that traffic? Honestly, he was actually responding really good. I took a quick little video right before uh, I started the whole deal and I was standing right on the black top right next to the, the first lane, the slow lane. It wasn't going very slow. It, uh, he, he took it really good, and he's one of our younger horses, too, so I was really surprised. I was really impressed with him. He took everything in stride. What was running through your head when you were on the highway chasing after Lester, and, and you're just about to cast your lasso? 
Uh, what was running through my head is I pray to God, people, slow down for us. Don't hit us or don't hit the cow. And and not so much. I mean, I just, I don't know. Like, if you hit a thousand-pound cow, like, not only a cow is going to lose its life, but most likely the driver is going to lose its life, too. And that's kind of why we do what we do is to, you know, try to keep people from getting hurt. How confident are you when you cast that rope that you're going to actually get around the, the, the animal? Um, pretty confident. Uh, yeah, we do this for a living. So I, uh, I rope a lot of stuff. I rope all the time. Um, I, I, uh, am a professional pickup man at the rodeos and stuff. So I, uh, I've been hired to basically be as handy as I am quite often. <laughs> well, and in fact, this isn't the first time you have had to go catch Lester. Um, no. When you, so, when you heard that he caught note again, what goes through your mind? I when when I when they called me again and said that he had been still out and they haven't found him or think they know whereabouts, I'm like, oh my gosh, like. You know, I hate to say this, but I hated that cow the first time. Like he was, he was so hard to catch the first time, and I was like, oh, I don't want to catch that one again. But you know, like I don't say no very often, so I, uh, I was like, yep, no problem. Especially when they're by the highway. What do you think the chances are that you're going to get another call to go get Lester? Oh my gosh, that is actually one of the most popular questions I've been asked on on, on uh, all of my interviews here. So. I honestly, I would not be surprised one bit if he, so like right now, I think as far as I know, he's been, you know, kept in a barn with his own stall and, and straw and personal feed and stuff. But eventually, you know, they want to let him back out with some companions and stuff. And I, I honestly would not put it past him to leave them and just, <laughs> and go. Like, I, I would not be surprised one bit. Professional cattle wrangler Ricky Littlejohn talking to guest host Helen Mann in June. You know, it gives us all hope to know that heroes like Ricky are out there willing to catch the obnoxious jerks that just charge snorting along our roadways. But there are also heroes out there who ensure that nothing catches the creatures that have to get where they're going and only know one way to get there. In this case, those creatures are eastern painted turtles, And the heroes are the people who were in a dry cleaning place on Main Street in Middletown, Connecticut. Their location sits directly between the pond where the turtles live and the marsh where they go to lay their eggs in the summer. So during nesting season, the staff at Best Cleaners prop open the front and back doors so the mother turtles and their hatchlings can travel straight through. With the help of employees like Jennifer Mallon. Neil talked to her in July. Jennifer, we're reaching you at the shop, I know. Any turtles in there today? Um, not today. There was some about a week ago. And when this is usually around the time that they start coming. And you see one at a time, or do they group together? Sometimes there's three or four of them at a time. It, it, it all depends, really. You work in a pretty busy place, a dry cleaner. There's high yeah. traffic, so how careful do you have to be? Oh, we're constantly looking at the floors, and when we pull into the parking lot, we drive really slow looking at the floor. Oh, man. Have there been any accidents? No, no, really? no accidents. Oh, you guys are you guys are eagle-eyed and very careful. That's good to hear. I was worried about asking you that one, but uh, all no, all happy we, news. We've been pretty careful. <laughs> so, when you do spot one in your shop, what do you do 
at that point. But beyond take a picture, I bet lots of people want to take pictures of them. Yeah, we usually take the pictures first, but <laughs> um, no, we, we usually, once we see them, we, we pick them up, and a lot of times we're able to carry them across the road, actually, to the um, the lake where they, they go to, because they, they hatch in the back of our um, building, of our business. There's a little pond in the back where the mother lays the eggs, and um, then once the babies hatch, they come through our our business, and... We usually pick them up and carry them across, and sometimes they're we're not able to right away, so we put them into a little container with water and like a rock until we're able to carry them across. <laughs> I saw a picture; they're so tiny and pretty adorable. Uh, I have to say, if you if you weren't so thoughtful, if you and your team weren't doing this, what do you think would happen to them? Um, a lot of them would probably get squished by the cars because it's a pretty busy. Um, road out in the front of the business and we have in the past seen some that didn't make it because they usually go around the building sometimes or other routes but most of them come through the back door <laughs> it's just it's so great to imagine Do, does it ever feel well it doesn't sound like it but does it ever feel a bit bothersome no no yeah. it's actually it feels like part of the job now <laughs> yeah it's in the job description. These, we should mention, yeah. are female eastern painted turtles on their ways to lay eggs. As I mentioned, a lot of people might not take the time and the effort to do this. So why do you all do what you do? Before, like, the business was built here, it was all wetland here before the building was was um, built. So they were used to coming in and out through this way. And then now that the building's here, they're kind of just used to the, the route going back and forth so we figured since we kind of took part of their their um home from them that we feel kind of obligated to at least try to help well, the ones we can across the road to have a longer life that was jennifer mallon explaining why a job at the best cleaners in middletown connecticut involves managing turtle traffic Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favorite podcast app. A New Year's Day is supposed to be about looking forward. You're supposed to think about ways you can improve and make resolutions, laying out specific ways to make those improvements and all that kind of thing. But it can also be a day of regret. Regret about how you rang in the New Year last night and how it's ringing you out right now. And regret about the mistakes you feel you've made in life, including the loves lost. Well, tonight's program is about hope. So if you're lamenting a high school breakup while you wait for your hangover to lift, take heart from this next story. In 1963, 18-year-old Jeanette Steer was engaged, but her parents forced her to break it off. A crushing blow to her fiancé, Len Albrighton. But he clearly got over it, eventually. 
because we reached Len Albrighton and his wife, Jeanette Albrighton, who's now 78, in April. Denny, Len, congratulations. How's married life this time around? Fine, good, lovely. (laughs) I'm tolerating her. Oh, really? That kind of talk will get you into trouble really fast. I've got the wooden spoon here. (laughs) I bet you do. I bet you do. Well, let me ask, can we go way back, Jenny? Just tell me what what it was about Len that made you fall for him in the first place. I don't know. know, Everything, proper gentleman, very polite and everything. It was great. But then you called off the engagement. Why did you have to do that? Well, in them days, your your parents, uh, you were told you 18 was too young to get engaged and what have you, and uh, and to go to Australia. They told me I had to break it off, and uh, I had to obey my parents. That must have been hard. How did you tell them? I had to write them a letter and tell him they weren't going to let me go. Len, what, what do you remember about getting that letter well i was i was quite upset because you know it it arrived on my 20th birthday fortunately on that day i had friends around for my birthday so they eased it for me you know but it wasn't very nice no it was upset you know how long did it take you to get over that heartbreak about two minutes (laughs) (laughs) really you moved on so fast no. Of course, it took me, I don't know how long. I mean, it was uh, 60 years ago. What was it uh, that made you fall in love with Jenny? I was a pupil nurse on the wards already in the hospital. And she started a year after I did. And then we worked together on the wards. And I found that she was a, a lovely, caring person. You know, she was very attractive to me as well. I just asked her out and she felt the same about me oh for some unknown reason (laughs) how long did you date before you proposed that first time about uh six weeks i saw a month or six weeks oh wow whirlwind we were only together for about three months before i went off to australia right so you were in australia when you got the letter yes yep Oh, yeah. goodness. In the end, Len, you, you and Jenny both ended up marrying other people, had families. So how did you reconnect That's... all of these years later? I was just wondering what happened to any friends that I used to have. And I looked up Jenny online. I knew she had gotten married and found out that she was still living on the Isle of Wight and decided to go back there for a holiday because yeah. my younger brother lived over there. And found out her address. And then I just walked up to where she lived and that. You just showed up on her doorstep? No, uh, I just stood there looking over the fence. But then she came out of the house. What was going through as you're taking those steps? Do you feel like your 20-year-old self again? Are you transported in your mind? Is there music playing in your ears? Not really, no, because we were both getting older. She looked older and I look, and I know darn well that I looked older. <laughs> Jenny, what about you? When you see this man, did you know it was Len right away? What did you think? Didn't know straight away, but after what, a couple of minutes, clicked on. And then I had um, I looked round and there was my late husband look around the wall to see who I was talking to. 
I had to turn around and say it was somebody looking for directions. <laughs> I got away with it. <laughs> so then you had that meeting. When did you decide to ultimately get back together? Well, I sent her and her husband Christmas cards. And then in 2017, he uh, died. Later on, I went over for another holiday there and and stayed with her for a few days. And then you decide to get married. How was the wedding? The wedding was lovely, yeah. yeah. It made me very happy, and, and I still love him very much. Yeah, Worth the wait then? Yes. Yeah, it was for me. Yeah, and me, lovely. From April, Neil's conversation with Len and Jeanette Albrighton, who got married 60 years after their initial engagement. And when you end a relationship like that, especially when one of you is in Australia, you assume you'll never see the other person again. That also applies, of course, to the smell of a freshly embalmed Egyptian mummy, a smell that last existed in Egypt 3,500 years ago. We'll never smell that again, we all thought. It didn't keep us awake nights, but it was a little bit disappointing, I guess. Well, be mildly disappointed no more. This year, a team of researchers led by Barbara Huber of the Max Planck Institute of Geoanthropology managed to recreate that long-lost, not especially lamented smell. In September, Neil found out how. Barbara, based on your research, what might a freshly embalmed mummy smell like? Well, the scent that we have recreated um, is a very complex one, and it has many different layers, I would say. Um, but the first or the dominant aroma um, is definitely a woody kind of pine-like scent, a little bit as you would go through a forest, I would say. But in, it also has like a hint of bitumen, a little bit of beeswax, something sweet. Um, and you might even be able to pick up uh, a fresh citrusy note of um, pistachia. So it's a very pleasant smell. And it's the thing that um, was applied to the mummy, not the mummy itself. It's not mm -hmm. the like a uh, decay smell. It's more the, the thing that you, the antidote to that. You know, when we first talked about doing the story, of course, everyone scrunches up their nose at first. But then when we thought about it some more, when you take into account how important these rituals uh, and the burials were for ancient Egyptians, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that scent, a pleasant scent was part of it. How important was that to them? It was inc incredibly important. Because um, the main uh, purpose of mummifying was um, preserving the body for the afterlife. But it was also very important to the ancient Egyptians not to stink in the afterlife. Um, because they kind of like equate like mal odors with uh, the decay of the body. And this was the one thing they, they wanted to prevent. Because when the body is intact, then your soul can come back into the body in the afterlife and you can live on for eternity. And if your body decays, um, and they have really vivid um, pictures about that in their ancient texts, they say the body becomes countless worms, it rots and it decays, and then they also say it stinks horribly. And they didn't want that, so they applied all sorts of various nice-smelling aromas, um, aromatics, um, spices, uh, and, and created these mummification balms. And these balms also had things in them like... Um, antibacterial or antimicrobial components, and they also helped in preserving the body. So altogether, it was a really effective thing. You worked with a French perfume expert to create 
a copy of the scent to replicate it as best you could. What was she able to bring to the table? This um, collaboration was really interesting um, because uh, we identified the ingredients, um, but uh, working with the perfumer really, I, I really learned that blending the different ingredients together is an art for itself. But did she get any ideas, you know, to to start making this available for sale? <laughs> this ambient yeah. people love a scented diffuser or a candle these days. <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> we have uh, we have been asked that a lot lately. <laughs> so I, I think we need to sit down and <laughs> and talk strategy. <laughs> Would you seriously um, consider it though? I could totally see that, but it's a little bit out of my comfort <laughs> zone. I think I, I will stick to the science and then let other people yes. <laughs> market it. <laughs> Barbara Huber of the Max Planck Institute of Geoanthropology talking to Neil in September. So that's a, you know, a hopeful development, but I know you're still disappointed that you were born 4,000 years too late to smell cooked mammoth meat. If you had a time machine, I know that some of you, maybe even most of you, would travel back to an ancient campfire and inhale the distinct odor of mammoth meat, and then you'd come right back. Well, what if I told you your very normal dream had come true, that the Australian company Vow Cultured Meats had, using science, created a mammoth meatball? as in a meatball made of lab-grown mammoth meat, and a fairly mammoth mammoth meatball at that. In March, Neil talked to company founder Tim Noaksmith about why someone would do that and why the someone was him. Uh, Tim, I am looking at the calendar as we speak. Uh, April Fool's Day is coming up, so I need you to go on the record here. Are you guaranteeing that this mammoth meatball is not an early April Fool's Day prank? You have my absolute word that this is real. It was a real innovation. I'm not, not going to turn around in a few days and tell you it was one big joke. Okay, we've got it on tape now. What's the response <laughs> been from museum visitors in Amsterdam? It's been massive. Yeah, we had quite a lot of press at our event in the museum yesterday. Everyone wants to talk about it. Um, so I've had a lot of interviews today, that's for sure. I, I bet. I, I've seen some images. It is quite large. Uh, just yeah. Just describe it. For, for our listeners, what it looks like and smells like? Well, it's a mammoth meatball, so it would be a miss of us to make it small. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of how it looks, it looks like a giant meatball. It looks like a meatball you'd expect from a mammoth. Um, it's charred on the outside because to cook it, we needed to use a blowtorch on the outside after an oven bake. And in terms of the aroma, it's, it's super interesting. The mammoth protein that we ended up growing produced a quite a unique aroma that was closer to things that we've tried like crocodile than it was to, uh, to beef. Okay. Most of us haven't smelled crocodile meat, um, at least anybody <laughs> I know. So is there any way to describe it? It's, uh, look, I would say it's, it's, it's a meaty aroma, mm-hmm. um, but it's definitely a bit unique. Um, okay. So perhaps your listeners will have to try some crocodile. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, sort of of the mind that always, you know, try everything once. I, I never, you know, say no to, to new food experiences, rarely do. It doesn't look that appetizing. Now, was that something you <laughs> took into consideration? Was this just to become a conversation starter? Are you worried that maybe it doesn't look appetizing to folks? I mean, it looks like a giant meatball, and I think unless you're really hungry, that might not look super appetizing. Perhaps for our ancestors 4,000 years ago when it went extinct, maybe this was a a delectable-looking meal. But (laughs) you're absolutely right. This was, rather than thinking about something that you're going to go and pick up at the supermarket on a Friday night, it's something that we really just wanted to trigger a conversation about, about the future of food and about how it can look better and different than maybe what we're having now. We've had some conversations about 
lab-grown meat or cultured meat. Um, but, but just give our listeners a, a sense of what exactly we're talking about here. Yeah, basically we're looking at a new way to make meat, so a new way to feed cities and countries. And the way that we do that is we grow the cells of animals, in, in this case in, in big metal tanks, instead of the animals themselves. So we don't require large amounts of farmland or the kind of resources that go into that and the impact. Instead, we can do the same, but but in a better way in, in electrified facilities. And how do you make mammoth DNA part of that process? Yeah, well, in this instance, the mammoth is it's quite a good and intact genome. So it means that we have the, the DNA language of the mammoth, but like anything that that's that old, it has gaps in it. So what our, our team of scientists did is it filled the gaps with the genome of the African elephant, which is a very close relative. And then what we're able to do then is go into that DNA language and find the code responsible for a very specific protein. So in this instance, it's something called myoglobin, which is responsible for a lot of the color and aroma in the meat that we eat. And basically, we took that DNA language inserted it into another cell and that cell became like a factory basically producing a protein that hasn't been on the planet for for 4,000 years now and so we grew 40 billion of these cells to end up making the the mammoth meatball that you've seen in those images there's a reason i haven't asked what it tastes like yet because it's not to be eaten this this mammoth meatball um why is that well i mean again we're dealing with a protein that's very very old here in fact, there's no one on earth that can tell you exactly how that responds in the stomach. Now, it's not to say that it wouldn't be safe, but we would want to put it through a large series of rigorous testing like we would with any product that we want to bring to market. Because it was a conversation starter, we built it and we released it to the world instead of doing all of that rigorous testing so that we could do the tasting. So it was never intended to be a, a new product to commercialize. It was intended to start a conversation like this. It started with a conversation exactly like that. Tim Noaksmith, founder of the Australian company Vow Cultured Meats, talking to Neil about a lab-grown mammoth meatball in March. But there's some hope for you, the possibility of green meat. Not, uh, not like literally the color green, I meant environmentally friendly. And a couple of weeks after that interview, we spoke with someone else who was trying to make a responsible food-related choice. Crystal Regeer Westergaard had some extra chocolate bars that were about to expire. And she wanted to give them away rather than throw them away, which was more of a challenge than that might sound like due to the number of extra chocolate bars she had. Neil spoke with her in April. Crystal, just how many chocolate bars do you have to give away before June? 133,000. Oh, boy. And that's going to be give or take a few, but yes. Okay. I know you've done the math on this. So if you were handing these out on the street, how many people would need to be eating these bars? Well, I guess one in every one in every seven Calgarians or something. That would be a lot. <laughs> and what what kind of response have you received so far? All over the map. Like, yeah, like really constructive things from like Perlator and then less constructive things of people who are suggesting some things that, right, we thought of months ago and just won't work. Like there's a fan favorite philosophy that either schools will do it or that the Oilers will hand them out at games. And those are two fan favorites to suggest that the Oilers have contractors in the building that sell chocolate bars. They can't just hold those people by bringing in free ones. And what kind of chocolate bar are we talking about here? It is the historical Canadian chocolate bar, the rum and butter. The rum and butter. I didn't Mm -hmm. know about the rum and butter. 
to I well, started looking at the story. Well, you might be young. <laughs> yeah. I like to think so. Yeah, you kind of you kind of have to be over 47. <laughs> it's not just that you have so many to give away. It's that the clock is ticking on the expiry date, right? So how did you end up with so many of them? Well, first off, why do we put an expiry date on it? So here's a little fact. Chocolate bars in Canada don't have to have expiry dates. That's not required by law or anything or by our food safety boards. It's required by our grocers because that way they know, you know, how long that has that bar been around. Is this thing turning over? What's going on? So we, of course, then put dates on our bars. So as soon as you put a date on your bar, right, then that becomes gospel. On this date, no one's going to want it Mm -hmm. or going to want to eat it. So we dated the bar. Uh, We made had to make a law. Uh, at the end of COVID, because if you didn't order like gigantic numbers, like over a quarter million, you couldn't even get wrappers sent to Canada by the companies that make the wrappers. And frankly, we thought we could sell that. We'd sold a million the year before. It seemed like a decent idea. But on hindsight, I guess people had eaten their million the year before. They didn't (laughs) didn't eat quite that many. <laughs> oh, I should I should mention rum is in the name, but there's no alcohol content, yes? Right, yes, it's non-alcoholic, yeah. Rum and flavor. Rum flavor, and what is how would you describe it biting into one? Well, if you think of that wonderful um rum sauce that you might have thrown over plum pudding when uh, you have Christmas time and frankly you could throw on anything and be able to eat it. That's the rummy sauce and it's in the middle of a chocolate bar. So you mentioned the the suggestions you've received, some of the fan theories uh, that aren't going to go anywhere, but you need someone to take a, a big batch of them off your hands, certainly. So is there is there any light on that front? Yes, we found that although the Calgary Food Bank doesn't take candy, other food banks in a network in Alberta will take chocolate bars, and they work together to kind of share them around. So yes. They are willing to take some. We're working with them, see how that pans out. Yeah, how, how many do you think they'll be able to take? You know, I mean, we won't probably bother with anything less than 11,000 chocolate bars because that's what's on yeah. a pallet of them. So I would say probably one or two pallets. You know, they, most, they didn't yeah. seem squeamish. They seemed, <laughs> they seemed to, this wasn't their first rodeo, luckily, because we need someone who is not their first rodeo because it is my first rodeo. <laughs> Crystal Regeer Westergaard, founder of the company Canadian Candy Nostalgia, talking to Neil about her surplus of imminently expiring rum and butter chocolate bars in April. And it may have been her first rodeo, but she still managed to rope in enough food banks, churches, charities, and other organizations to divest herself of all 133,000 bars. Yes, I did say rope in after saying it wasn't her first rodeo. This is not my first rodeo. Now, life gave Ms. Westergaard lemons, and she made lemonade. And Brittany Schneer and Drew Mitchell also made lemonade, even though life absolutely pelted them with lemons at speeds of up to 110 kilometers per hour. Brittany and Drew were supposed to have an outdoor wedding on September 16th, but that plan was foiled by a wedding crasher post-tropical storm Lee. Now, other people might have given up hope, but as Neil found out, they weren't going to let a storm steal their thunder. Brittany Drew, congratulations. Thank you so, so much. It's been an amazing weekend. Well, Brittany, I, I did look at, at the photos of your reception, and it does look stunning. I mean, it looks like it was in a hall built built for a wedding, but where was it really? <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, 
So it's our wedding ended up being hosted in my father's fish plant in Blanford, Nova Scotia. If we go back to that moment, Drew, when you know the storm is, is coming, you know, it, it started to become clear that plan A wasn't going to work as you had imagined. So when someone brings up the idea, you know, and says, what about the fish plant? What do you say? Yeah, well, I, I would say yes to basically anything. I just, <laughs> uh, you know, I we were looking at halls and some other options. And, uh, you know, this this was, you know, this was our wedding. But Brittany organized the most of it. And the, the halls and the, the community centers, I don't think, were her uh, favorite option. So yeah. when her father decided uh, to, you know, turn the fish plant into a wedding venue, she was very excited and I completely supported the plan and, and thought it would actually be a pretty neat idea and it all somehow worked out. When when most of us hear fish plant, we might not be excited because we, we imagine that it is a factory setting and it might might smell a little like fish. So why were you so all in on this? Um, great question. You know, uh, the whole reason I originally wanted to host my wedding at my family's property was really that it's a very special place to myself and my family. And when the fish plant was suggested, it, it, it just kind of felt right. It, it's a company that's belonged to my father for over 30 years. And my brother works very closely with him there. And, and it just felt like a great representation of what Blanford and, and my family is really all about. So the storm, of course, you know, wasn't wasn't as bad in the end, fortunately, as as many had feared. But it certainly was still a significant weather event. So you've got the venue now. Everything's, you know, arranged and, and looks beautiful. But how do you make sure your guests get there safely? Well, so I dropped Brittany off to get ready with the girls. And I went down to the plant to kind of help uh, get things ready. And on the way down, uh, there was lots of seaweed and big rocks, boulders that had been thrown onto the road. There was trees down, so you'd have to drive on one side or the other side of the road. Um, and then the municipality kind of were out there dealing with, with things. So we had snow plows going around town, uh, cleaning up all the seaweed and the rocks off the roads. And at the end of the day, we had power, we had food, uh, and the building's very safe. So a lot of people actually came up to me during the wedding and said, you know, this is probably the best case scenario for <laughs> yeah. tonight because many guests didn't actually shower because, you know, it was probably their first wedding they hadn't showered before. Um, so we, you know, we we had a, a proper hurricane party, I'd put it that way. Yeah, I heard it was still going at 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was kind of a surreal experience leaving the venue and walking out and the storm surge was coming up and, there was no power anywhere else, and it was like a little bubble inside the fish plant, a little bubble of love, you could say. It was kind of, you know, fairy tale. Like, I'm a sailmaker, so uh, I'm a sailor, and uh, she's the daughter of a fisherman. <laughs> we got married in a fish plant during a hurricane in South, you know, South Shore, Nova Scotia. So uh, that, you can't really get more maritime than that. Brittany Schneer and Drew Mitchell of Nova Scotia telling Neil about getting married at a fish plant in September. You want a quick, uncomplicated hit of hope? How about biologist Andreas Pashukonis telling us about a new invention that enables him and his colleagues to track tiny South American frogs through the rainforest? Doesn't that sound hopeful to you? How about this? The invention is frog pants. Yeah, I thought so.
Andreas, how do you get these little pants on these tiny frogs? <laughs> it's a lot of um, fine motor skills and a lot of practice in handling tiny frogs and and sewing little frog harnesses. But <laughs> uh, well, we go find them in the rainforest and we catch them and we put the tags on. How do they respond to, to being held and dressed? Uh, it's all kinds of practice. The less we handle them, the better they respond. Of course, that comes with practice, but we're, we have gotten pretty good with it, and we train our students very well, and so we just snatch them, and in a few minutes, they have their little tag on, let them go. It takes some, like any animal, they might scratch a little bit at the waistband first, and like a dog with a new color, and then they just go on with their business. I've had a chance to see some video of this. Describe what it looks like, this contraption. So it's uh, frog pants is a bit of a misnomer. <laughs> uh, my French colleagues like to call it a telemetric G-string <laughs> or a little, <laughs> depending on of the course. model, it's, <laughs> it's a little kind of G-string or a little harness made of uh, fine silicon tubing that is used for laboratory and then sewn together with, uh, with thread uh, to make like a little climbing harness of sorts uh, that holds the tag with the antenna uh, behind the frog, that, which allows us to track them. Biologist Andreas Pashukonis explaining his innovative frog pants, or telemetric G-strings to be more accurate, to Neil in June. Now, even after all these stories, you may still insist there's no reason for hope. For one simple reason, morally speaking, everyone is terrible now, and everything is worse than it has ever been. And now it's worse. And now it's even worse. Well, what if I told you that everyone had always believed morality is worse now than it was before, but that that is just an illusion? Okay, well, what if someone else told you? Like experimental psychologist Adam Mastroianni. Adam, you looked at studies going back as far as 1949. So when you look across all of those years, what were people consistently saying about morality? People say that people are less kind, less honest, less nice, less good, less ethical, less civil, less respectful, any positive interpersonal adjective you want to put in there. <laughs> people are less that way today than they were in the past. And people say this just as much today as they did in our earliest data, which, uh, as you said, goes back to 1949. So we, uh, in, in every country that's ever been surveyed, people say that moral decline is a problem in their country. Um, and we also found that it cuts across uh, demographic groups. So you might imagine the kind of person who would say morality is declining is an older person. And we do find that they say it, and they say that there's been more decline over their whole lives than a younger person. But, of course, older people have been around longer to see this unfold. And so if you divide the amount of decline that they think there's been by their age, so you get like a decline per year mm -hmm. score, they give the same number as, uh, as younger people do. So younger people are on track to look like the older people when they get older, uh, which is pretty surprising. The other um, demographic difference that, that does matter uh, is political orientation. So you might imagine the kind of person who says morality is declining is a conservative person. And we do find that uh, people who self-identify as conservatives say there's been more decline in interpersonal goodness than liberals do. But liberals say it, too. So this isn't something that people that only people on the right side of the political spectrum say, even on the farthest left, they think this has happened as well. But it's not. It's not. So is it just yeah. human nature to think it's all going to hell in a handbasket all the time? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we think there are many reasons why uh, people believe this. But there are two in particular that can combine to produce an illusion of decline, even when none has happened. And 
One is a tendency to focus on negative information. Um, uh, this is what we call negativity bias. And we've uh, known from other research for a long time that, uh, that this is, tends to be the way human attention works. And the other is um, a memory bias where the badness of bad memories fades faster than the goodness of good memories. And so um, if, you, you know, if you get turned down for your uh, school dance, at the time, that feels pretty bad. 20 years later, that doesn't feel so bad. It maybe even feels like a funny story. You had a great school dance. Uh, 20 years later, uh, that probably you know, doesn't feel as good as it did on the day, but it still feels pretty good. And, and this is the way that uh, what seems to happen to memories on average, that the bad get less bad, the good get less good, but the bad fade faster than the good, and some of the bad even flip and become good. And if you put that together with our bias toward negative things to begin with, you can produce this illusion where every day the world looks bad, but every day you remember yesterday being better. Neil talking to experimental psychologist Adam Mastroianni in June. That brings us to the end of this New Year's Day edition of As It Happens. As It Happens, we'll be back again for you tomorrow. I'm Neil Kyoksal. Happy New Year. And I'm Chris Houghton. Happy New Year. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.